Genesis 8 verse 20 says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the, we've talked about the righteousness of Noah. We've talked about the faith of Noah. And here we see this sacrifice of Noah. And God, I've read this verse time and time again, but it's just been on my heart, burning in my mind. And so Lord, I pray that you would teach us today. God, by your spirit, you would lead your people in an understanding of how great our God is. And that all we are and all we have is all for Jesus. God, transform us by your spirit through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I have a, if I were to have a bucket list, um, one of those items on my bucket list would be to see a California condor in the wild. Um, I've always been fascinated by, I mean, it's just massive. Like, how can you not be fascinated by a condor. Every time I see a vulture flying around, I always look like, okay, you know, the, the, the white on the wings in a vulture is in the back, but on a, on a turkey vulture, but on a condor, it's, it's in the front. So I always look. And, and also they're just so much bigger than a turkey vulture. And so I always look. And one of these days, I'm going to see a condor in the wild. And I know that there's like reserves and, and, and conservation efforts. And you can go and you can go to a zoo and you can see them, but it's not the same. I want to see one in the wild. And one of the reasons this is so fascinating to me, the condor is so fascinating, is because in the 80s, the condor population dipped to as low as 27 individuals. There's 27 California condors in the world, and none of them were in the wild. They were declared extinct in the wild, and they only lived in captivity. Now, there today are uh, upwards of, I, I think the, the statistic is 300 condors in the wild and then a couple hundred in captivity thanks to the efforts of conservationists. Now, why do I talk about this? What Noah and, and his family are, are tasked with is not often thought of in terms of a conservation effort. Right, but that's, that's what's going on here. Remember, God wiped out not just humanity for their sin, but he wiped out all of life. He wiped out all of the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and, and everything that creeps on the ground. And, 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 he's, and he's, he's given the, the world a fresh start. And so he, 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 he wipes out the, 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 the planet because of sin. But then Noah and his family along with every animal, every, every species of animal, is, is saved on the ark in order to repopulate the world, not just with humans, but with animal life, and, and to rebuild civilization. But Noah is tasked with this responsibility. Hey, here are these animals, Noah. I want you to take care of them in the ark. And then when, when the ark strikes land again, the animals get out, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll rebuild the, the world and the, and the animal life. And Noah is absolutely the worst conservationist on the history of the world. The first thing he does is, you know, you, you think about like 
a boat striking ground and there's no one around and you go to like survivalist mode, right? And so like you find water and you build shelter and you build a fire and you gather food. No, Noah builds an altar and starts sacrificing the animals that God has entrusted him to save. Now imagine going to like a condor, like conservation facility. And, 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 and there's, there's one not too far from here, like in the Ojai area. You can go there and like take a tour and see what, all the things that they're doing to save these birds, to save this endangered species, all the, 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 their efforts to increase the population, release them into the wild, the concerns of, you know, for condors, it's like lead poisoning and, you know, all of these different things. And so they can, they can you know, talk about the, the, the struggles in, in, in conserving these, these birds. And, and, and imagine someone going in and going, have you ever thought about like sacrificing some of these birds? You know, just in an attempt to, you know, repopulate the, the I mean, you'd be, <laughs> you'd be arrested. Uh, it, it wouldn't, it's not going to go over well. What is, what is, what is Noah doing? Why is he doing this? On the surface, this looks incredibly foolish. Noah, I'm saving you and the animals. And then once he's saved, he, he sacrifices the, the animals. It seems very foolish, but it gets, it gets to the core of something that I think we're all afraid of. Okay, we are all afraid of scarcity, we are all afraid that there's not going to be enough. There's not going to be enough water. This was a very real concern in California to like six weeks ago. There's not going to be enough water. There's not going to be enough food. This is a concern for a significant portion of the world. There's not going to be enough food for me. There's not going to be enough money. There's not going to be enough time. There's not going to be enough. There's never going to be enough. Why is there not enough? Why is, are the, the, the resources that I need, the things that I desire, the things that I want to do, why is it never enough? We're afraid there will never be enough. And when resources are limited, the idea of sacrifice feels reckless. But Noah knows something that we all need to remember. And Noah knows that the earth and everything in it, including the things that we consider to be ours, belong to God. The earth and everything in it, including the things that you think are yours, they're not yours, they belong to God. And so in light of this, what we give to God is never wasted. What we give to God is never wasted. Biblically, the things that we give to God are called sacrifices. Okay, now there's lots of sacrifices throughout Scripture. The largest sacrifice in terms of numbers of animals sacrificed in Scripture in the, Old, in the Old Testament, is Solomon's sacrifice in 1 Kings 8. This is a massive celebration to dedicate the temple that Solomon had built. And 1 Kings 8 says that Solomon sacrificed 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. This is a massive sacrifice in terms of sheer number. But I would argue that Noah's sacrifice in Genesis chapter 8 is bigger than Solomon's. Because he sacrifices at least 7% of the earth's population of clean animals. 
seven pairs of clean animals. That's 14. And if he only sacrifices one of every clean animal and clean bird, which it says he sacrificed some of all of them, that is at least 7% of the earth's population of that animal. We're not going to get into clean animals and unclean animals. That'll be for a later sermon. But these animals are a significantly uh, uh, limited resource. And he makes this massive sacrifice in terms of the percentage of the global population of animals on that one day. But it's not wasted. See, it reminds me of something that Jesus said to his disciples as they sat outside the temple and they watched all of these people make these sacrifices to God, make, contribute this offering to God. And Jesus says, look at all these wealthy people who come out and give significant portions of their income because of their wealth. But this woman here, there was a widow who came and she gave two small copper coins. Jesus says she has given more than all of them because they gave out of their wealth, but she has given out of her poverty. She has given all that she has to live on. See, it's one thing to give out of our abundance, to sacrifice out of our abundance. It's one thing for Solomon, who has an entire kingdom filled with animals to make a massive sacrifice. It's very different. For Noah, this is all there is in the world. And yet because of his devotion to God, he gives it to God. It is a very different thing to sacrifice out of your poverty than it is out of your abundance. Now today we don't make animal sacrifices. Okay, Jesus is the true and better sacrifice that atones for our sins once and for all. He suffered on the cross and died to give us forgiveness of sins. He fulfilled the sacrificial system. We don't make animal sacrifices, but this doesn't mean that we don't make sacrifices. See, maybe uh, you don't consciously do it for some deity. Maybe you're here and you're like, I don't believe in God. It doesn't mean that you don't make sacrifices. You still make sacrifices. You give up or sacrifice lesser desires in order to obtain and pursue a greater desire. You might sacrifice the kind of car that you drive so that you can live in a nicer home. You might sacrifice the kinds of clothes that you wear, the brands that you buy, so that you can uh, uh, eat at, at restaurants. You can eat out more often. You might sacrifice lots of things, the hours that you spend at home in order to work to make more money so that you can obtain a different uh, thing that's of greater value to you. You sacrifice lesser desires for something that is a greater desire. And depending on what you value most, you will sacrifice time and money and energy. You will sacrifice your most precious commodities to acquire or to cultivate that thing. We will always give up a lesser desire, a lesser value for what we truly value. And this means that what we give to God is an evaluation of his worth. What we give to God is an evaluation of what we believe God is worth. The word worship is derived from an old English term, worthship. 
Worship is literally declaring the worth or value of something. Anytime we proclaim who God is and what he has done and how beautiful and marvelous and glorious he is, that is, is worship. We are declaring his value. And so worship is when we acknowledge and honor the thing in our life that is of supreme value. And so I just want to ask, is God worth your time? Is God worth your energy? Is God worth your money, your resources? We can say yes to this. We know that intellectually. But then let's look at how we spend our time. Literally, we call it spending time, spending energy, spending money. We can say that he's worth it, but where do all of these things go in our lives? If you were to track every hour you spent throughout your week, what would it say about your values? Do you protect Sundays? It's time. And we set apart Sundays as, di- as different from the rest of the week. We can, we can worship on our own. We can read our Bibles. We can pray. We can sing songs in the car. But there's something unique and something special, something beautiful that happens in a Sunday gathering when the body of Christ gathers together in the presence of the Lord to hear the reading of his word, the proclamation of the gospel, and to worship together with one voice in his presence. There is something very unique about that. And culture has made it very difficult to protect Sundays. Back in the day, many of you remember when just things weren't open. It was all Chick-fil-A all the time. They weren't open on Sundays. You, you couldn't go to a grocery store on Sundays. You, you had to prepare. You had to protect Sundays. You went to the store on Saturday. You did the things that you needed to do because Sunday was sacred. Sunday was special. It was protected time. Now it's getting harder and harder to operate in culture. So many things just have bled from Saturday into Sunday. We try to fill our weeks with so many stuff. And so now Saturdays aren't enough for, for kids' athletic events. We've got to go into Sundays. It it breaks my heart. My my son loves jujitsu and all of the kids tournaments, it seems, are on Sundays. Adults do it on Saturday and then the kids tournaments are on Sunday. And we've had to say, hey, as a family, we just don't, we don't do this. Turn down opportunities to go to baseball games. And I'm sorry, boys, we, we don't do this. Not because I'm a pastor, Okay, but because we're Christians, okay, we don't protect Sundays because your dad does this for a living. Okay, we protect Sundays because God saved us. And so we protect that time. We spend that time. We give that time to God. We prioritize that time. We can do lots of things throughout the week, but we've got to protect Sundays because God saved us. And that is where we get to be with other people that God has saved and remind one another that God has saved them and how beautiful that he is and praise him together. We've got to protect this time. Since COVID, many people have gotten in the habit of watching a sermon online or listening to a podcast and calling it church. And it's not. It's not church. It's a total misunderstanding of what church is. Church is not a sermon. 
Okay, church is not a teaching. Church is not a building. It's not an event. It's, it's, it's a people. We are the church. Those who have believed in the gospel and have been reconciled to God and have the Holy Spirit, we are the church. We are the temple of God. We are the dwelling place of God. We are the church. And when we sit in our beds in our pajamas and we watch it on a screen, that's not church. I'm not talking about the people who are, 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 are shut-ins, who are uh, at high risk for communicable diseases and, and things like that. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who willfully make the decision to not gather with the body of Christ, not protect the Sunday time for other reasons. And so Hebrews 12, 24 through 25 says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, not, not neglecting to uh, listen to a preacher or not, not neglecting to do various, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is what happens in the gathering of the saints on Sundays. We stir one another up to love and good works. Literally in the original language, we irritate one another, agitate one another to love and good works. And all God's people said, amen. It can be irritating. It's right there. But it's important because if you don't irritate me, if you don't stir me up, if you don't agitate me to get out of my comfort zones, and the, the person next to you to get out of our comfort zones and worship the Lord and serve the Lord and prioritize him above, above all else, it's not going to happen. We're not going to do it. We need to stir one another up. And so we gather together to worship and to remind each other of what is most important. Are we protecting Sundays? Do you protect time every day to acknowledge the Lord? to spend time in scripture, to hear his word read over you, to talk to him, to have a conversation with him. We protect our time with our spouses. We protect our time with our friends. We protect our time with lots of different people. Are we protecting our time with our savior? To prioritize that, to give him the first fruits of our day, the first hours, the first minutes, the first moments, whatever it may be. It's not about amount, it's about priority. It's not about giving the, the, the most. It's about giving what's first. Are we protecting the time that we need to spend with people who need Jesus? It's so easy to just spend time with people who think like me, look like me, do the things that I like to do. But do we prioritize spending time with people who, who, who need help, who need grace, who need resources, who are just, who, who need Jesus. How do we steward our time? Are we, are we protecting our time? How do we spend our time? What about how we spend our energy? Okay, what are the things that get prioritized? Do you use your energy or, or your gifts and your passions for God's kingdom or just your own? How do you think about vocation, right? I, I, I go to work this many hours a week. And then, I, and then I, I, even if you're protecting Sundays, and then I give God this time. Did you know that you could give eight hours a day at your career to Jesus? 
Not just by talking about Jesus, but just by recognizing that being a hard worker, being a good employee or a good employer brings glory to God. He made humanity to work, to rule and subdue and to work the ground and and to cultivate society and to be a blessing to humanity and to creation. You could go to work and, and use that for God's glory and not just to build your own kingdom. You can also take the gifts and abilities that you've gained through education or through experience at work and give that to others. If you're a mechanic, there are people in the church who would love to have someone who knows something about cars to help them in their situation. If you're a lawyer, there's people who need legal counsel in, in, the, in the church. Can you contribute what God's given you, the energy God's given you, the gifts that he's given you? Can you contribute that to some service other than the building of your own identity, the building of your own reputation, the building of your own business, the building of your own kingdom? Can you do that? Now, look, flat out, this is so hard for me. Okay? This is, this is hard. Honestly, I struggle with this because I could point to my vocation and say, check. And every time I do, God goes, you get paid for that, dude. It is so easy to get up here and preach and build my kingdom. May it burn. This is hard to do. I'm not standing up here as someone who does it well. We, this is hard to do. Are we serving the church? Are we serving Jesus? Are we just serving ourselves with the way that we, we use our energy? Now, listen, there's a variety of opportunities to do this. Look, you can sign up to serve. There's opportunities to contribute to the church and not just consume, to contribute to the building up of the body of Christ, not just consume the church's resources. There are ways to serve. I would point you in the direction of, of kids and youth ministry. You can, you can sign up online. Serve those who need to know about Jesus, who need to know that they're loved, who need to know that they're prioritized, who need to know that they're special, who need to know they're not just another face in a sea of people, who need to know that God values them. You can show the youngest generation how much God values them by valuing them. When you value them as a member of the body of Christ, it's communicating God's love and value for them. We need people to show our children how special they are in God's sight, that they are not second-class citizens in the church and serve them. If you were to track every dollar that you spent, many of you do, you should. You should know where your money is going. But what does your budget say about what you value? Monetary value. It's a literal, your bank statement is a literal description of what you value. I value this, this many dollars worth. I value this other thing, a different amount of dollars worth. If you look at your bank statements, what do you value? Your bank statements are a reflection of the things that are most important to us. Now, is there anyone who truly knows Jesus who would say that anything in life is more valuable than he? No. 
Anyone who truly has tasted and seen that the Lord is good will never say that anything in life is more valuable than Jesus. And yet, my bank statement begs to differ. Now, again, this isn't about amount, right? This isn't saying like, well, I have to give Jesus more than I pay for rent or my mortgage or like, okay, I've got to give Jesus more than I spend on food. No, it's not about amount. It's about priority. Are we giving God our leftovers? Or like Noah, are we getting off the boat and saying, this is what I've got, Lord, take it. This is your, is it the first fruits? We talked about this a few weeks ago with Cain and Abel. Is it our first and our best? It's not about amount. It's about priority. God gets our first and our best. And so are you protecting finances that you have to give to the kingdom of God, to give to the work of the ministry, specifically in the local church? That's what we exist for is to literally communicate who God is and what he's done and the value of Jesus to anyone who will listen. And so are we prioritizing? Look, the, the, there's lots of good organizations to give to, Christian organizations to give to. There is not a single organization outside of the church that Jesus himself didn't personally establish and commission and is himself the head of. Great organizations, but Jesus is the chief shepherd of his church. The church is God's mission in the world. The church is God's priority for his kingdom purposes in the world. There is no greater thing that we could contribute our finances to than the local church. And when you give to the church, we can think about all of the other needs all the other people who, who, who have needs. But when we give to the local church, we are contributing to those who have needs. We support with thousands of dollars every year, people in the church and outside of the church who have needs. We're aware of them. They come to us and we support them. And so when you give, you're contributing to not just what happens here on Sundays and throughout the week, but you're contributing to those who have needs out in the community organizations and individuals and all kinds of good causes. We do this not only to show the value of God, but also to show them that God values them, that all people are significant to God. Now, this is incredibly difficult. These are our most precious commodities, time and energy and finances, We can add to that list relationships and hobbies and vacations and all of these other things, recreation, that that are, are extremely precious to us. And they should all, all of it, be used for the glory of God. But these are incredibly difficult. And the reason I think it's so difficult to let go of these things is because we recognize them as extremely limited resources. Look, there's only so much time in a day, only so much money in my paycheck, only so much energy and time and time again, I'm continually feeling spent when there's still plenty of hours left of the day. I am tapped out. And so we see our energy, we see our time, we see our finances as this extremely limited resource. And because of that fear of scarcity, the fear of running out, the fear of there never being enough, we will withhold from God the very things that God has given us. And when we do give them, Oftentimes, it's because of something we're trying to gain in return. 
something we deem of greater value, whether it's something material or whether it's, it's approval. We want God's approval. We're, we're trying to earn forgiveness. We're trying to earn grace. God, I'm going to give you these things so that you treat me a different way. We're, we're trying to, to uh, receive love from God or something else. But it just ends up treating God like this spiritual Santa Claus. Think about it. What do kids leave out at night for Santa Claus? Cookies. Why? Because God's going to bring them, or Santa Claus is going to bring them, uh, uh, you know, a, a bunch of things. And when he does, Santa Claus, here's a cookie. And so oftentimes we treat our sacrifices, the things we do for God is like, you know, God, you, you, it's, it's your job. This is what you exist for. You exist to bless me. And when you do, here's a cookie. Wash it down with some milk. The minute God stops blessing you, the minute Santa stops coming, you're going to leave many cookies? See how, see how, how, how backwards that relationship is. God, I'll, God I'll, keep, I'll keep doing this, but you, you know your role, God. Just trying to get something from him. And when we do this, it shows that what we want most is only what God gives. Deep down, what we truly value is what God gives, but God is greater than anything he could ever give us. We don't come to Jesus so that Jesus gives us a bunch of stuff. We come to Jesus because he is the greatest thing we could ever receive and he gives us himself. The reason that Noah was able to make such a great sacrifice was not because of something he wanted God to give him or what he wanted God to do for him. Rather, it was because he was well aware of what God had already done. Noah knew what God had already done. And so what we give to God must be a response to what he has done for us. What we give to God must be a response, must, must be a, a, a uh, uh, it's, it's not trying to earn something from him. It's not trying to get him to do something for us, but it is a response for what he has done for us. And many people have tried to make a connection between Noah's sacrifice here and something in the Old Testament law, something that God has, has commanded. But look, Noah's sacrifice was not an atonement for sin. And Noah was not trying to atone for sin. He was not trying to achieve forgiveness for sin. First of all, Noah didn't have any context for understanding a blood atonement. That wouldn't have come for centuries later. Other people have pointed to this and said, oh, this is a tithe, right? A tithe just means a tenth of someone's wages that is given to the service of God. The book of Leviticus talks about the regulations of giving a tithe of all one's harvest and all of one's flock. It's 10% that's supposed to be set apart and given to the service of God. But Noah's sacrifice doesn't fit the concept of the tithe, not in terms of percentage and not in terms of, of language. All of this is trying to find something in scripture that shows that Noah was just obeying God, but there's nothing in scripture. God did not require this of Noah. He did not ask this of him. Noah does this of his own accord because of what God has done for him. And so if we are going to try to identify something in the Old Testament law that Noah's 
sacrifice resembles, it is better to connect it with the peace offerings of the Old Testament. The peace offerings or the free will offerings, the thanksgiving offerings is what they are sometimes referred to in the Old Testament, were not sacrifices that God commanded. They were sacrifices that God allowed. God said, if you are ever so delighted in me because of what is happening, what I've done for you, for being my chosen people, if you are ever so delighted that you want to say thank you, this is how you do it. You come and give a free will offering, a peace offering, celebrating this communion that you have with me. And so imagine somebody asking Noah as he's making this sacrifice, Noah, why are you doing this? One of his kids comes to him and says, Dad, why are you doing this? Obviously, the response is, look what he's done for us. Look at what he's done for us when when, when because of sin, the whole world was to be blotted out, God saved us. He chose us. He redeemed us. He entrusted us with the entire world to bring him glory. Look, look at what he has done for our family. Why wouldn't, why, why wouldn't we give him our lives, our very selves, everything that we have? Noah does this because of what God has done for him. And so I just want to ask you, what has God done for you? Look, everything he did for Noah, he did for you. Okay, by giving Noah a future, he made a way for you to exist. He didn't just wipe out humanity and be done with it. He saved Noah and his family. And by the grace that God gave to Noah, you are alive. Everything he did for Noah, he's done for you but he's done so much more for you. Has God given you more in Jesus or less than, 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 than he's given us? He's given us more. We might live because God preserved humanity and made a way for us to be born, but we have an eternal future because of what Jesus has done for us. He's done so much more for us. He saved us not from a flood, but from sin and Satan and death. God blotted out all of humanity because of sin and saved Noah. But Jesus was blotted out because of your sin in order to offer salvation to anyone who would believe. Does your life reflect what God has done for you? Do you do anything in life differently because of what God has done for you? Certainly, our lives are going to look different after coming to Jesus, after knowing about Jesus. My life is very different um, after trusting in Jesus. Most of us can point to things specifically that we do not do because of Jesus or sins that we're trying not to commit because of Jesus. Hopefully, in your faith in Christ, you can point to your life being different because of repentance. You've turned from your sin and you have turned toward Jesus. Certainly, if you're a Christian, then there are things in this life and in this world that you have repented of, but repentance is not a sacrifice. You can't look at repentance and say, well, I gave up porn. There you go, God. Gave up my alcoholism. I gave up my whatever it is. You can't look at repentance and say this is sacrifice. In the same way that you can't like stop drinking poison and call it going on a diet. Okay, no, that's just called not being an idiot. It's just called life. It's called, it's called survive. It's just called, it's, it's normal. 
We can't look at repentance and call it sacrifice. Okay, it's great that there are things that we no longer do because of Jesus. But what are we doing because of Jesus? Not just the passive changes in our lives, but the active changes in our lives, the things that we're pursuing for the good of other people and the glory of God. What are we doing? See, the reason we struggle to sacrifice for God is is not because we don't believe there won't be enough for us. Okay, there won't be enough time, there won't be enough money, there won't be enough food, enough energy. It's not just because we don't think there won't be enough, but ultimately it's because we don't believe that God is enough. God, the reason there's not enough money is because you won't provide. The reason there's not enough energy is because you won't be my strength. The reason there's not enough faithfulness is because you haven't been faithful enough to me. The reason is not because we don't think there's enough resources. It's because we don't believe that God is enough or good enough or able enough or powerful enough. So we doubt the goodness of God, we doubt the grace of God, we doubt the power of God, we doubt the salvation of God, we doubt the person of God, we doubt that he is, he's, he's enough. We doubt the enoughness of God. But when we look to Jesus, when we understand, when we truly wrap our minds around who God is and what God has done, when we look to Jesus, who gave up everything. The eternal son of God who existed in perfect love and glory in the heavenly realm, left his kingdom, left his throne, left his father, left his riches, left his glory, left his comforts, abandoned it, gave it all up to take on poverty, to take on weakness, to take on humanity, to take on an early death. He died very young to take on all of the weakness and limitations and suffering and and temptation that you and I experience. He left it all and took it on himself. When we look to Jesus and all that he has done for us, How can we respond any other way than, Lord, have it all? Take it all, all of me, all that I have, all that I am, all that I desire, all that I love. Lord, it's it's yours. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become poor rich. He gave up heaven to give it to you. He gave up his kingdom to welcome you in. He gave up his life so that you could have life, so that you could have a future, so that you could have eternity. He gave it up for you. And so what shall we give to the one who gave it all. What would you be if not for Jesus? What would you have if not for Jesus? What would you keep for yourself when you can use it to put your greatest treasure on display for all to see? What would keep you from giving your time? 
What would keep you from giving your energy? What would keep you from giving your talents and passions, your treasures, your resources, your finances? What would keep you from giving God everything? Because all we have and all we are, church, is all for Jesus. Whether you acknowledge it or not, everything in your life that is good, everything in you that is good, God has given to be used for his glory. All that we have and all that we are is all for Jesus. He will have his glory. He will have what rightfully belongs to him. Not, and we don't give it because we're trying to get anything from him, but because he's already given us everything. Look, no one can leave this place and go, I heard a pastor say that I need to give my life so that Jesus will love me. It's not what I'm saying. Jesus loves you and you don't deserve it. So give him everything. Jesus loves you, therefore, we give him our lives. Jesus gave his life for you. Therefore, we give him our lives. Jesus laid his life down for you. Jesus has served you. Jesus has given everything for you. Therefore, out of the joy in our hearts, getting off the, the boat, Noah looked around and said, yeah, God, take it. Have it. Do we look at our lives when we wake up in the morning and go, God, you let me live again? After yesterday? You've given me another day? Take it. You, you allow me to experience any ounce of joy after I grieved your spirit because of my sin? Lord, take it. I don't want it. I don't deserve it. You give it to me because you love. Have it back. All that I am and all that I have and all that you are and all that you have, it's all for Jesus. You can look at your bank account. It's not yours. I know you put in hours to get it. It doesn't belong to you. The energy that you have only by the grace of God, the breath in your lungs, it's from him. He gives it to you because he loves you. Then he wants to invite you into his kingdom mission to bring glory to him and good things to the people of this world that he loves. It's not yours. It's not mine. It doesn't belong to the church. It's Jesus's. It belongs to him. What will we give to the one who has given us everything, all that we have and all that we are is all for Jesus. I'm going to conclude with this. Romans 12, 1, after outlining all that God is and all that God has done, this is what the Apostle Paul says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Church, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. By the mercies of God, present your bodies, reality carpenteria. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This word here, spiritual worship, is literally the word logos. It is your logical worship. It is your logical service. It is your logical response. When you know what God has done for you, when you know what God has done for me, when you come to grips with the fact that the king of the universe died for you, the logical response is God, take it all. The reasonable response, the rational thing is not to cling to it for yourself. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. Give 
it away and you will experience, not receive, you will experience what you have already received, that God has already given you everything. He's already given you everything. And when we look at it as something that's scarce, this limited resource, we don't experience the abundance that we have in Jesus. Hold it with open hands, let it go, and you will realize that you have more than you ever thought imagined because you have Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you don't need anything else. Holy Spirit, come. God, our hearts grip onto so much worthless stuff that when we put it in your hands, it can bring you glory. God, forgive us when we try to keep things for ourselves. Forgive us for when we hold back, hold back our devotion, hold back our our lives, our energy, our time, our money, our relationships, when we hold back from you. Holy Spirit, come stir us up, irritate us, agitate us until all that nasty stuff just comes to the surface so that you can scrape it all away. God, purify us right now as we encounter the power and the presence of your spirit. Holy Spirit, come and and purify us. Show us your beauty, Jesus. Show us your glory. Show us your value in this place so that we might give you what you deserve. All glory, all honor, and all praise. In Jesus' name, amen.